Again, we are uh, glad uh, that you are here. We're going to be in the first chapter of Romans. If you'd like to go ahead and turn there, as we open God's Word, let's pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning, and uh, we are thankful um, to gather. We're thankful that we have uh, the freedom to, to come here to open our Bibles to speak about truth. And so my prayer this morning is that truth would go forward, that it wouldn't be clouded out by uh, distractions, that it wouldn't be clouded out by clumsy handling, um, but that we would hear from you uh, through your word this morning. Lord, as is always the case when we gather, we want to pray for another church, and so we pray for Aldersgate. Um, Lord, I drive by they're building every morning um, on the way to work and every Sunday on the way to worship. And um, I'm always thankful to see life there and to see things going on there. And I pray for Rick Prettyman and for Julie. And I pray that, they're, uh, that their marriage is flourishing and that that is um, encouraging um, the role that he has uh, in leadership as a pastor at that church. I also am thankful that um, just realized this morning that um, they're in the exact same uh, verses of Romans that we're in this morning. And so, Lord, as I have prayed that you would bless us, I pray that you would bless them immensely. I pray that he has enjoyed you this week through his studies, that he has spent um, significant time with you, and I pray that he has heard from you so that his people uh, this morning, that that church, as they gather, that they would um, hear gospel truth about the power of the gospel on the salvation Lord, I pray that you would bless that church. I pray that uh, they would continue to flourish. And I pray that just in general, that we would never have a spirit of competition uh, among one another as churches. Um, there's just no room for it in the Word. There's no room for it at all. And so I pray that you would help us to, to be prayerfully lifting one another up and encouraging one another as we have opportunity. Lord, I also want to pray for a member of our uh, city council. Pray for Cedric Dean his wife, uh, Takiva, and um, just thankful for his service to our country uh, um, as he was in the Air Force. Um, I'm thankful for um, the um, drive and ambition that he has to, um, to promote um, justice, and I pray that as he serves uh, in place six that um, he would serve well. I pray that you would give him wisdom, insight, and discernment as he serves, and uh, I pray that you would allow uh, him to work well with all the other council members. I pray that together they would move as a unit that has the well-being of Greenville uh, in mind. Uh, Lord, we, we pray for them every week, and, and I just praise you this morning just seeing some of the development in our city over the last few years um, and knowing that that comes from a lot of work and a lot of um, attention to detail. So we thank you for that. Lord, this morning, we commit our time to you. We, we ask that you would um, speak to us through Romans, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we considered how the gospel changes us. That was the, the title of last week's sermon, how the gospel changes us. And the short answer, if you weren't here, is completely. Um, it changes us entirely. Um, we are new creations in Christ who are called to put off the old self and put on the new self. So it's important for us in this section of Scripture as we're studying it to understand that um, the aim of the gospel is not just to sort of tweak your life or adjust your life or 
or just round, round you out in a couple of areas, but the aim is, is, is uh, completely and entirely changing you. It washes us completely clean because that's our state. We need to be washed completely clean, and it makes us completely new. Christ's righteousness is counted as ours. Everything he achieved is counted as our achievement. So the gospel has a wildly profound effect on those who it has, who it has affected. So we looked um, at the gospel changes that are outlined in Romans 1, 8 through 15 last week. And just a real brief recap, we found six things. Faith means being genuinely thankful for other believers. And I think that was challenging to some of us because some of us are genuinely thankful for other believers who are exactly like us, the ones that think like us, the ones that have the exact same doctrine. And last week, remember, we prayed for the Methodists because we're all on the same team. And so um, faith makes us thankful for uh, all believers. It gives us a concern for um, not just those who we walk closely with day in and day out. It also means having concern, focus, and prayerfulness for both the unsaved and the saved. So we learned last week through the gospel that, that we... We don't, we're, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. We're not either the kind of person who's been affected by the gospel and now we care about lost people, or you've been affected by the gospel and you care about saved people. It's both-and. It's always been that way. So we can't neglect anyone. The gospel makes us have a, a, uh, a deeper understanding, a deeper care for everybody. Faith submits to God's will and God's timing. We considered last week that sometimes we have goals and aspirations where God hadn't opened that door yet. So rather than imposing our will on God via the gospel, what we do is we submit to God's will and we submit to his timing. But when he does open the door, faith goes. Faith has feet. When the gospel affects us, we do not, it doesn't just affect us sort of in our minds. It doesn't just affect us as a notion. In fact, faith has feet and we go and we make sacrifices for other people. And when we go, faith does not ever abandon the gospel. We don't ever abandon the gospel. The gospel is not something you graduate from. So what we learned last week, what we considered last week, is that when we go and we're serving people, we don't ever leave the gospel behind as if we don't need it anymore, like just one of many tools in a toolbox. And we don't ever consider that the people we're serving no longer need the gospel. Maybe they need something else. We're going to try something different. Don't try something different. You are gospel people. Stay the course. And then finally, because of the gospel, we considered last week that the faithful are, are to always remain teachable. We, we live a life of sanctification from the point that we are, are um, converted until the end of our lives on earth. And it's a long process. And because of that, there's never a time where you get to stop listening to other people. There's never a time where you get to say, you know what, I'm really more of a talker, not a listener. Because um, I'm, I'm really far along in my faith. In fact, um, what, we, what we've learned is that um, we're to be teachable at all times. Um, we're, we're to listen. We're supposed to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Wisdom tells us to listen closely even to the wisdom of a child. Because God speaks through, through uh, anyone who has been affected by the gospel. So, um, there was a lot of change that we saw there. This week, our focus is on how the gospel makes us debtors how the gospel makes us debtor. So look at Romans 1, and we're actually going to pick up verse, eight, verse 16. So we're going to read 8 through 16 this week. Romans 1, 8 through 16. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Paul is the one who is doing the thanking, and he is thanking God for the people 
who make up the church in Rome. These are Jews who 20 years before were at Pentecost, and they heard, and they were there when the tongues fell on people as, as a fire, and they, they heard the truth of God in their own languages, and then they all went back. So 1,400-mile journey from Rome to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They do it every year. And so they heard the gospel of Jesus 20 years before and went back to Rome and planted the church. Paul's never met them. Paul's never partnered with them in any gospel endeavors. But man, you can see some pretty emphatic language in these opening verses of how much he loves them. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He really wants them to understand. Like He's like, Jesus is my witness. I want to get to where you are and minister to you and bring the gospel. And so, he's very emphatic. He says, for I long to see you, in verse 11, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. There's that teachability. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. Barbarians just means non-Greeks. It's not like a form of wild people who bang their chests or whatever. I mean, maybe some of them did. I don't know. But the main thing is they're non-Greeks. So barbarians are just non-Greeks. So they're not as, you know, the, the culture was all about being Greek and so they weren't as cultured. So maybe they were the, the rednecks of the era. We don't know. Um, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So our focus is how the gospel makes us debtors. The question comes from the emphatic language that we just read in these verses. Paul longs to see them. He's often intended to come to Rome. He is eager to preach the gospel to Rome. And maybe the strongest emphasis is, is the word obligation. He says, I'm under obligation, both to Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish. I don't care if you're educated. I don't care if you're completely uneducated. I don't care if you're cultured. I don't care if you're completely uncultured. I am obligated to you. We're going to explore that more later in the sermon. Generally, I wait until the second half of the sermon to get to the application part because, as you know, it's a big mistake that we talk about a lot to just jump to, what does this mean for me, before we actually consider what a passage means? So we're not going to do all the application, but I want to start with a question that will move us in that direction earlier in the sermon than we normally would, and it's this. Do you ever feel reluctant or embarrassed or hesitant to share your faith? That's something that I want you to kind of be thinking about as we cover these verses. Do you ever feel reluctant, embarrassed, or hesitant to share your faith? And if you do, I want you to think for a moment, what are the reasons behind that? 
Is it that you're not sure it's going to be effective? Is it that you're worried about your ability to communicate it clearly? Is it that you're worried about the reaction of the person who's going to hear it? Are you embarrassed to share your faith, reluctant and hesitant? And if so, what are your reasons? Because what I want you to know this morning is that if you have reasons that come up in your mind as I ask that question, Paul had lots of reasons to feel the same way, especially in regards to Rome. Paul had lots of reasons to feel the same way you might be feeling. John Stott, a commentator, mentions, he he says this, Rome was the symbol of imperial pride and power. People spoke of it with awe. Everybody hoped to visit Rome at least once in their lifetime in order to look and stare and wonder. For its time, it was unmatched. It was remarkable in its grandiose nature and how how the, the architecture and the infrastructure and just what all was going on. The artists, the best artists from the world would come. The best speakers from the world would come to Rome. So people always wanted to go just to marvel at it. But who was this Paul who wanted to visit the capital city, not as a tourist, but as an evangelist? Who was this Paul who believed he had something to say which Rome needed to listen to? What folly and presumption was this? According to tradition, Paul was an ugly little guy. This is a commentator, not me. I wouldn't ever call him. Paul was an ugly little guy with beetle brows, bandy legs, bald, which, you know, isn't a big deal in itself, (laughs) a hooked nose, bad eyesight, and no great rhetorical gifts. So what could he hope to accomplish against the proud might of imperial Rome? Would he not be wiser to stay home? Or if he must visit Rome, would it not be prudent for him to just keep his big mouth shut, lest he be laughed out of court and hustled out of town? Remember last week we considered that Rome was the epicenter for all kinds of idolatry. Like, if you could imagine any kind of idolatry, that's what Rome was. And in fact, what that means is that um, most of the people in Rome were committed to things that had nothing to do with Jesus. And, and so the church that exists in Rome, this church that he's heard about, that's faith exists, it's not a faith that's turning Rome upside down necessarily because there's all sorts of idolatry still going on, but it's turning some lives upside down. And those who it has affected are faithful people, and their faith is going out, and people are hearing of a church that exists in homes, largely, that is, that is, that is consistent, and that is wholehearted, and that is existing in a really, really difficult spot. And so, Paul sees this small church there. Paul sees the grandiosity of Rome, and the question we ask is, does this affect Paul's desire uh, to go? And the answer is obviously no. Paul seems very unaffected by um, his, his, his own stature and the smallness of the church and the weakness of his ability to speak publicly. On the contrary, Paul is eager and obligated. Paul is eager and obligated. And what we're going to consider this morning is why. Why was Paul eager and obligated? In these verses, Paul outlines a gospel journey for us that he's been on. You may not have noticed it as we read through it, but he mentioned three particular things that happened to him on his gospel journey that we can take a look at. The journey that he has been on affects the way that he views the future. So something's happened, and and now it affects his goals for the future that clearly haven't happened yet. 
the three parts that we're going to consider are conviction, obligation, and enthusiasm. And we're going to consider them briefly. Write them down in your notes, because I want you to consider them in your own time. But conviction, obligation, and enthusiasm. He shares them in the reverse order, right? It's sort of like when you're telling a story, sometimes you talk about what's going on now, and then what happened before it, and then what happened before it. That, that's what Paul's doing here. He starts off with this enthusiasm. I cannot wait to come to Rome. As God is my witness, I want to be where you guys are. And then he talks about this obligation that he has to the barbarians, the Greeks, to the wise, and to the foolish. And then when he says in verse 16, um, this is how we see it play out chronologically, it started with conviction. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this whole thing that ended with the enthusiasm to go began with the conviction of the gospel. Later on in other sermons, we're going to spend a lot more time in this verse. These verses, 16 and 17, are actually sort of the thesis for all of Romans. So we're not going to rush through it, but we're just going to pick it up today For this reason, we need to pick it up for the simple reason that in it, we see Paul's conviction. He is convicted about the power of the gospel and his need of it. And not only his need of it, but the need of every sinner. He knows the story of the gospel. He knows how people were created. He knows the fall of the garden. He knows the redemption of Christ. And so when he knows that, as he's affected by the gospel, he has this deep conviction of how much he needs it, which almost immediately turns into how much other people need it. You don't see him changed by the gospel and then sitting on it for a decade. Here, he jumps quickly from conviction to, in fact, obligation. The conviction that he has is so deep and so intense and so real because of the effect of the gospel. It's what God's done in him that it turns to obligation. I need the gospel, and so do you. But it doesn't stay there. Eventually that becomes enthusiasm. His obligation is not one of hesitant, begrudging, reluctant movement. He's not sitting there going, golly, if no one else will go to Rome, I guess I will. He's not sitting there going, well, I'm going to pray God doesn't open that door, but on the off chance he goes against what I pray, I guess I'll go to Rome. He is emphatic. He wants to get there. His language is very clear. I'm eager to come to you. I long to come to you. My gospel aspirations and my gospel goals have not yet lined up with God's timing, but oh, how I wish they would. He's in Corinth right now. He's so eager to get there. There's an enthusiasm. We have conviction, obligation, and enthusiasm. There is no obligation without conviction, and there is no enthusiasm without obligation. We see it play out in that order in these verses. So right there in the very middle, we have this obligation, right? We have this indebtedness that seems to be very important. I mean, he builds it up and builds it up, and he's like, I'm under obligation. Gentiles, Greeks, barbarians, Jews, foolish, wise. So what is it? That's what I want to look at this morning. That's what I feel like God's leading us to. What is this gospel obligation? What causes Paul to feel indebted to the Jews, the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, and the fools? How does the gospel make us debtors? When we start talking about gospel indebtedness, it's a downright slippery slope. 
I want us all to be very careful, and I hope you're paying close attention, because when we talk about gospel indebtedness, I, I, honestly, I would offer that I have never had a sermon title that could be more misconstrued and misunderstood than the gospel makes us debtors. I mean, some of you sitting here this morning, you might look at your bulletin, because I know everyone does, right? And you see, you see the gospel makes us debtors, it's like, here it comes, here comes the guilt trip. Here comes the talk about how we're not doing enough. Here comes the talk about how it's time to repay what's been given to us. In order to understand what it means to be made gospel debtors, where this sense of obligation comes from, we got to spend a few minutes considering what it doesn't mean. So for the rest of our time, we're going to talk about what does it not mean and what does not mean. So first, I want to make it clear. The source of our obligation does not come from the kind of debt where we're paying someone back. Please hear that clearly this morning. When, when he says, I'm obligated, the source of that for him, the source of that for us, does not come from the kind of debt where we're paying someone back, particularly here where we're paying God back. When you generally hear about debt, I think that most of our thoughts come from the kind of debt where we're borrowing something and we're obligated to pay it back. You go to the bank, I'm going to borrow money to do something, buy a car, fix a house, whatever. And they say, okay, great. And they don't just say, see you later, good luck. They expect it back, right? You sign lots of contracts to make sure that it all is going to come back because you are indebted to them. That's not the kind of debt we're talking about here. Some of us are guilty of this kind of thinking in regards to the gospel and God, and we don't even know it. Some of us are guilty of thinking that we're in a debt that we have to pay back. I want to give you an example. You know, every Sunday, we, whether we pray about it from this stage or we pray about it in preparation, we pray that the words of our lips would not be far from our hearts, that we would not be offering up in song something that has not gone through our hearts and that we don't believe deeply. So here's here's something that we can use to see, are we guilty of this way of thinking? When when you sing the words, Oh to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be, what do you mean by that? I really want you to think about that. Very familiar song. Oh to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Or, I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed, I surrender all. What are you doing in that moment? What are you talking about? Or, um, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. What does that mean? What are you saying as a worshiper when you sing that? Do you think that you're paying God back for grace? Do you think that you're paying God back for saving you? Is that even possible? That thought that I will now live a life of service to God in order to pay Him back for the grace that He's extended is taking grace, which is a free gift, and turning it into a debt that God never intended it to be. 
This is a very important point this morning, and I want you all to understand it, because as we talk about gospel indebtedness, it's so easy for us to get it wrong, and it's so easy for us to be motivated by guilt. As we prayed this morning beforehand, my prayer, I woke up with a burden for it this morning. Honestly, I think one of our weaker areas as a church is evangelism. I think one of our areas of the greatest possible growth is in the area of really genuinely sharing our faith, sharing gospel with other people as often as we can. And I want to be real careful because I don't want you to walk away being motivated to share the gospel because you feel guilty and you need to pay God back. Do not take the gift of the gospel and the gift of grace that's a free gift and turn it into a debt. Please know God never intended it to be a debt for you to try to pay back by living a good life. This is what's known as the debtor's ethic. If you're taking notes, I'd write that down and consider it more later. The debtor's ethic. To understand this debtor's ethic, I want you to turn over to Psalm 50. We're going to start in verse 7. This is God speaking to his people, Israel, about how they're living, and he's speaking to them about their motivations behind the way that they're living. And in Psalm 50, verse 7, he says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's saying, you're going through all the right motions. That's not why I'm rebuking you. And he goes on. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds on the hills And all that moves in the field is mine. And he goes on in verse 12 to say, If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? What God is addressing with them there is saying, Are you moving in a way where you think I need something to be God? I need you to do something so that I can be God? He's saying, you bring your sacrifice and you bring the flesh, you pour out the blood on the altar properly. Hold on, do you think that that's like the fuel I need to be God? Do you think I somehow feed on that and when I don't get it, I'm just just barely getting by as God? I was thinking about the movie Buddy the Elf, right? Okay, everyone's seen it. Where the sleigh can't fly because there's not enough Christmas spirit, right? And then they sing loud, and then there's more Christmas spirit, and now the sleigh can fly. That's not how God is. It's not, oh, people are doing good things, now I can flourish as God. He says, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? I don't ask that for you because I don't have something for lunch. It's about your worship. He goes on to say, He doesn't say stop it. He doesn't say what you're doing is ridiculous. He says, 
Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You move out of thanksgiving. You bring the sacrifice out of thanksgiving. You serve out of thanksgiving. You don't do this because I'm a God who's withering and needing your help so the Spirit comes alive and I can be God. You move out of thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. And this is how it plays out. And call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The debt we have to him is keep calling out to him. Keep serving out of thanksgiving. And in those moments of desperation where you need something, if it's a day of trouble, God is there for you. But you're not earning him being there for you. You're not paying him back through the good deeds. You are moving with a thankful heart. You are not moving out of the obligation of debt. And here God is saying, this is beautiful. This is how it works, children. When you need something, you call on me. And guess what I do? I redeem you. I rescue you. I help you. I provide for you. And guess who gets the glory when that happens? God. That's how it plays out with his people. So here he's saying, do I eat the flesh of blood, the flesh of the bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I'm going to get my glory when I deliver you. And then in 22, verse 22, he says, Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Apparently it's possible to go through all the motions of bringing an offering and bringing the blood and forgetting God. We can live a very Christian-y life and forget all about this relationship with God that exists where we're completely, totally dependent upon him. And he says, mark this then, you, forget, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Turn back to Romans. Certainly, there is a sense of indebtedness that goes along with our thankfulness, but the indebtedness is not our motivator. Certainly, we feel indebted to God if we're really reckoning with how good He is, right? I'm not saying you shouldn't have any sense of debt. I'm saying that there is no motivation. We're not motivated by a debt that we're paying back. There's a sad, dangerous, and subtle shift when we turn the goodness into a debt that we're trying to repay. David Mathis explains it like this. A danger lurks. The Bible doesn't have much, if anything, to say about obeying out of gratitude. (laughs) That may rock some of you. You may think, I'm completely motivated by gratitude. Be motivated by thankfulness. There's a difference here. And there's a... a, um, He said, well, I'll read. Danger lurks. The Bible doesn't have much, if anything, to say about obeying out of gratitude, giving thanks to God for what he has given to us is precious and essential, and so is trusting him for his ongoing provision in the future. That's what was outlined in Psalm 50. We're trusting him. We're certainly thankful. We're trusting him for his ongoing provision in the future. Thanksgiving is beautiful, but it can go bad on us if we try to give it faith's job. And then John Piper explains this in his book, Future Grace. He says, there's an impulse in the fallen human, all our hearts, to forget that gratitude is a spontaneous response of joy to receiving something. When we forget this, what happens is that gratitude starts to be misused 
and distorted as an impulse to pay for the very thing that came to us gratis, free. This terrible moment is the birthplace of the debtor's ethic. The debtor's ethic says, because you've done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. For some of us, we just move in that way. Like you don't have anyone over for dinner unless that person first had you over for dinner. You don't offer to watch someone else's kids unless maybe they first offered to watch your kids. The debtor's ethic is is all over the place. It says, because you've done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. This impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and the goodwill of another. That's what gratitude is. Gratitude isn't just quickly, I'm going to pay you back. I'm so thankful, I'm going to pay you back. Gratitude is, thank you. It's a spontaneous expression of, I I am so enjoying this. I'm overwhelmed by this. The impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and goodwill of another. He did not mean it to be an impulse to return favors. If gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt... It gives birth to the debtor's ethic, and the effect is that it nullifies grace. So as we're talking about what it means to be made debtors by the gospel, please beware of the debtor's ethic. Those song lyrics that we talked about are a reference to our sins that need to be forgiven, not our obedience that needs to be repaid, right? The song references that we just talked about are a reference to our sins that need to be forgiven, not our obedience that needs to be repaid. So when we say, um, uh, what was it, in in, uh, Come Thou Fount, um, what what was the one I shared? The bind my wandering heart to thee part, where, where he says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. We are not singing Oh God, you have given me grace, and I'm daily going to try to pay you back. That's not what we're singing. We're singing, Oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Listen to the next line. Oh to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. That's the kind of debt we're talking about, the debt where we need to be forgiven of our sins, the debt where daily we need Jesus to fix us, to draw us, because our hearts wander. We have that tendency. When we sing... um, all to thee I freely give. All to thee I owe. We're not saying we're paying back a debt. We are saying that we are completely dependent upon the gospel day in and day out. And we will live in thankfulness, but we won't allow this debtor's ethic to, to, uh, to creep in. So what is gospel indebtedness? We've talked about what it isn't. You're not paying God back for grace. How does the gospel put us into debt? What in the world is Paul talking about when he says, I have an obligation to come to you. I am obligated to the Greeks. What does he mean? Again, John Stott, the commentator, has this little bitty phrase in his Romans commentary that I read on Monday of this week, and I'm glad I read it early because it just kind of blew my mind, and I've been thinking about it, about debt. And he says this, There are, in fact, two possible ways of getting into debt. The first is to borrow from someone, so you've got to pay him back. The second is to be given money for someone by a third party. I want you all to think about that with me. There are, in fact, two possible ways of getting into debt. 
The first is that you borrow something that needs to be repaid. The second is that you are given something for someone else by a third party. I want to illustrate this with a personal experience. Years ago, I was in another country, and a friend of mine who lived there asked if I could take something back to his father back in the States. I said, yes, no problem. He proceeded to hand me a money belt with what we'll call thousands of dollars. I was like, well, I said yes. This is awkward. It was, in fact, more money than I had ever held in my hand before. I want you to take this to my father. Okay. The country we were in was an interesting one. When he handed it to me, by instinct, I held it tightly. When someone hands you thousands of dollars, you're not like, okay, whatever. I instinctively, like, one hand, two hands. Oh, my goodness. Things changed in that moment. My friend was entrusting something to me of significant value. Of significant value. And at that point that I took that money from him, I was in debt to his father until I delivered that which had been entrusted to my care. Game on, right? Whew. We got lots of money on us. And we're in another country that likes to know if people have lots of money on them. When we got to the airport, I'm trying to look like, you know, someone who doesn't care about anything. Never mind this money belt that I've got under my pants, kind of walking like this. When we got to the airport, it didn't take two seconds, and I was singled out of line by uh, a soldier who put his finger in my face, and he said, do you have any money? I'm like, come on! Why could you ask that guy? Do you have any money? Normally, I wouldn't be bothered by that question because I generally didn't actually have very much money. But today was different. Something had been entrusted to my care, and I was responsible to guard it from anything that might steal it away. Even someone who might tax you on your way out of their country. I had to guard it. So we had some tense moments where I chose my words very carefully. And I was able to get onto the plane with all the money in the money belt. But to win. And as I was far more, as I got on the plane, I sat down, and all of a sudden I'm far more aware of my surroundings, right? I'm, I'm aware of everyone who brushes up against me. I'm like, what are they doing? What are they doing? Are they trying to take what's been entrusted in my care? I'm aware of my surroundings. I slept very little. And when I did sleep, I would wake up and immediately kind of wake up and, okay, everything's there. No one robbed me while I was sleeping. I was paranoid, <laughs> essentially. Now, the aim of the morning is not that you'd be paranoid with the gospel, so don't go there. <laughs> but I want you all to see this example because when we landed that plane back in the States, I didn't go out to eat. I didn't sit on the money for a few days and then deliver it when I was out and about and had time. I went directly from the airport to my friend's father, and I delivered to him what had been entrusted to my care. And when I did, whoo, I was relieved. I was like, you can have it. I never thought I'd be so excited about giving away something so valuable. That's a lot of money. You can have it. It's all yours. It was never mine to hold in the first place. And so I didn't waste any time, and I went and delivered what had been entrusted to my care. Paul has not borrowed anything from the Romans. 
Paul is not trying to repay God. Jesus Christ has entrusted Paul with the gospel for the nations. And as you sit here this morning, in the same manner, Jesus Christ has entrusted you with the gospel for the nations. Do you move like that? Do you think like that? Not paranoid, but aware? Understanding it's not yours? The person who gave it to you deems it very precious, so precious that you're not allowed to sit on it and do whatever you want with it. It's to be delivered to the person who I want you to deliver it to. Jesus has entrusted each of us with the gospel. You have no liberty to keep it to yourself. You have no liberty to hide the most important thing that has ever affected your life. You have no liberty to sit on and hide that which will affect your eternity and potentially the eternity of your offspring from generation to generation. There is no option where we have the liberty to, oh, thank you for that, I'm going to keep this to myself. doesn't exist. The question would be, do you feel indebted to Greenville? Let's make it personal. Do you feel gospel indebtedness to the people of Greenville? There's a lot of unbelievers in Greenville. Do you feel gospel indebtedness to your country? Do you feel indebted to other strangers who live in other countries who you've never met? Munich team, as y'all are preparing to go, do you have a sense of gospel indebtedness that I don't know exactly what we're going to do when we get there, but I've got the gospel, and you know what? I'm obligated to everyone I engage. I'm obligated. I haven't met them. I don't know them. We haven't partnered anything, but I'm obligated because of what the gospel's done to me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus calls us to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Turn to Matthew 9. I've got two more places I want you to turn as we consider how this, how this affects us. Matthew 9.35. As you turn there, I want you to know Galatians 2 indicates that Paul was entrusted with the gospel the same way that Peter was entrusted with the gospel. And then in Timothy, Paul urges Timothy, Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to his care. And then in Corinthians, we're called to be ambassadors for Christ who speak not on our behalf, but on behalf of the one who has entrusted a message to us to take to other people, creating that obligation. And 2 Thessalonians indicates we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. We don't sit on it. We speak. And then Matthew 9, Jesus says, Jesus went throughout 935. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. We see that to have that sort of concern for other people is to share the concern that Christ had. 
And it's to heed the call that Christ has given. And it's to pray the prayer that Christ has encouraged. Pray for workers. Pray that there would be people who hear this and go. Because we are the kind of people who conviction and and being entrusted go together. We don't have biblical examples of someone who's convicted and affected and changed by the gospel but they weren't really entrusted with the gospel. When you're convicted by it, when you, like Paul, can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, in the moment that you have that conviction, you're entrusted with a message. Everybody. Conviction goes with being entrusted. They go hand in hand. We're ambassadors. Turn over to Romans 10. Romans 10, verses 9 through 15. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the best thing you have ever heard. You've never heard anything better than that. And immediately after it, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. I don't want you to be motivated by feeling like you have to be paying God back for the rest of your life. And I don't want you to be motivated by guilt this morning. I want you to be motivated by the conviction of the gospel. I want you to see in how you have been changed. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, as the one who has called a people to his own, as your story has now become the story of a people because God has done a work on earth that is amazing, if you're there, you've been entrusted with something. So the question is, do you have the gospel conviction that you should? Do you believe it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe? Do you believe without it you actually wouldn't have any chance? Do you feel a sense of obligation to other people in regards to the gospel? One of the sad byproducts of it being about just you and God, how are they to hear? Right? It's such an ugly thing to make it just a personal journey, just between me and God, because when you do evangelism, dies. We become self-centered. We become like the Pharisees when we do that. Our story is the story of a people. The churches that are meeting right now, are, we're all on the same team. And we have a gospel that's been entrusted to our care. And faith has feet and it goes. Do you have the sense of obligation towards other people in regards to the gospel? And have you reached the point of enthusiasm with the message that's been entrusted to us? Are you, enthousi- are you emphatic about it? Are you excited about it? Because that's, that's telling. I think maybe that's where many of us struggle, right? Look, I get it, but I'm no Paul. 
I'm just paying the bills. Did you know that when Jesus showed up, after 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, when Jesus showed up, most of the people living in Israel were just families paying the bills. What, what's important to you? There were some Pharisees, there were some Sadducees, there were some Essenes, there were some Zealots. But that was a small majority of the actual people who lived there. They were just going about life. Some would say, yeah, I'm a Jew. Yeah, I believe in God. But some of them were actually committed to God, and those are the ones who are the earliest followers of Jesus. So as we look at this, do you have that enthusiasm, that excitement about the message that's been entrusted to us? Some of us might lack the enthusiasm because we're so busy trying to pay God back when he never intended us to. For some of us sitting here, I'm never a good enough mom. I'm trying. I'm trying to be what God wants me, but I'm, it's never good enough. Never good enough dad. Never good enough parent. Never good enough friend. Never good enough worker. And we sit and beat ourselves up mainly because we're working in within the wrong set of expectations. You're not rejoicing in who you are in Christ. And so you're not moving according to who you are in Christ. He has reckoned things with you. He has changed you. He has made you altogether different. He's counted his as yours. And so we've been entrusted with this gospel that we share. And my prayer is that we would have that sense of conviction, we would have that sense of obligation, and that we would be a congregation that have enthusiasm about sharing what is the best thing we've ever heard. As we take the supper, we look back on the effect of the gospel, and we anticipate how it's going to work in the future. And in the same way in Psalm 50, we commit to continue to cry out to God in our time of need. We don't take a supper as a people who aren't needy. We take the supper because we're sick. We take the supper because we're needy. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous people, I came for the sick. And so when we take this, we take this committing to continue to cry out to God in our times of need so that he gets the glory when he rescues us. We will not ever have a sense of gospel obligation, much less enthusiasm, if we're not really first genuinely convicted as to the power of God unto salvation through the gospel of Christ. So, this morning we're going to take the supper as we do each week. We take the supper each week as a confession of our need of God and as a confession of God's grace towards us. Not because we're trying to do the right thing because Christian people take the supper. And that's how we pay God back. It's not how it works. We are confessing our need. We take it in anticipation and in reflection a confession of our need to God, God's grace toward us in Christ. In a way, the supper is like the gospel. He entrusted it to our care. He said, as often as you take this, do so in remembrance of me and in anticipation of his return. So let's pray as we prepare to take that supper. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. As a people... We thank you. I pray for genuine, wholehearted thankfulness. I pray that we would be a congregation, that we would be a people that received the gift as a gift. I pray that we wouldn't ever twist the gospel. I pray that we wouldn't ever hide the gospel. Lord, there's so many places where you tell us to you know, let it shine bright, to be salty, bright, aromatic. 
I pray that we would never hide it. I pray that in the midst of that thankfulness, that deep-seated enjoyment of what you have done for us, that we would have a proper balanced sense of how we've been entrusted with something precious that you have given us to deliver to others. Lord, I pray that we're not motivated by guilt and shame. I pray that we're not trying to repay something that you never intended to be repaid. And as we take this supper, Lord, as we pass out the elements, my prayer is that we would be examining ourselves, as it says, examine yourselves first. I pray that we would examine ourselves, consider where we are, and that, that if we see deficiencies, that we, that we cry out to you. I pray that as this congregation examines themselves before they take the supper, that if we see any areas of weakness, any areas of need, which we all have, that rather than you know, making an empty promise or I'm going to pay this back, I pray that we would cry out to you according to your promise that in the day of trouble you will rescue us and you will get the glory. We humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take the supper, I want to encourage you to... Um, don't find yourself so busy studying the gospel that you don't enjoy it. Um, uh, as I look at the sermon this morning, it's almost like, man, if we would just enjoy this gift for what it is, the other things will play out. <laughs> if we enjoy it rightly, the other things will happen. Evangelism will happen. Concern for others will happen. Faith having feet will happen. A sense of proper obligation will happen if we will enjoy the beautiful gift of Christ. To be clear, the gift we're speaking of is God sending his son for people who don't deserve it, sinful people who were destined for wrath. The wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because it suppresses the truth. We were all sons of disobedience. Jesus is the new Israel, the obedient son that Jacob was supposed to be and never was. Jesus' righteousness was perfect. He lived a perfect life. And that is not just something that affects you. It's counted as yours. That's the gospel. The beauty of what has been done for us will have an effect. So as we take this supper, just want to encourage you to enjoy the gift that God has given us in Christ. Take and eat. Take and drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, um, I pray that as we give, we would give wholeheartedly. I pray that as we sing, we would sing truly. We thank you for Christ. I pray that that gift of, does affect our worship, that we are wholehearted, that we're encouraged, and that we are overflowing with thankfulness. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Real briefly in closing, um, when you preach a sermon how the gospel makes us debtors, and it can be taken one of two ways, one is really great, but the other is a total train wreck. It makes me a little nervous if I misspoke anything. I've been sitting over there, did I say everything right? Did I confuse anything? Because, you know, if you go this way, it's great. But if you go this way, it's utter wrong badness. So um, I'll be sending out an email to the body tomorrow um, just to make sure we're all clear on the difference between the two um, so you can see it in writing. Study yourself as well. If you have any questions ever about anything you hear from this pulpit, no matter who's preaching, Call us. Our phone numbers are in the bulletin because we want you to know we're, we're available.
Um, that's part of the effect of the gospel on us is, is we're eager to have those conversations to, to clarify things um, if you have that. As well, there's the possibility that you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I've never heard the gospel before. Bring it on. <laughs> and if you're one of those people, this, this kiosk right here, we have information for visitors, but at the same time, we'll be available to talk to you about the gospel if you want to know more about who Jesus is and what he did to rescue you from your sin. Also, if you're looking for a church home, that's the, same, that's the place to go. If you need anything at all, we're going to be right over there. That's what we're getting at, right over there. So um, y'all stand. Um, I want to remind you that on February, the first Sunday of February, we're going to have a baptism. And so if you're interested in baptism, want to know more about it, or if you have a kiddo that's in that spot, um, please let us know so we can make that happen. And it'll be a part of our corporate worship time on that Sunday morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Christ. Uh, we thank you for a gift. And I pray that we would never twist or misuse that gift or respond wrongly to the gift. Um, Lord, help us in light of that gift to see that we've been entrusted with something precious that we have no liberty to keep to ourselves. Lord, help us to have that sense of gospel obligation to other people that you intend for us to have. Lord, I'm thankful. Oh, I'm so thankful for the Holy Spirit who does far more than any of us could ever do with our words or actions. We love you. We're dependent upon you. We humble ourselves before you. We submit our will to you. We submit timing to you. You are great. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a great day.